1966, I was coming home on the lowest, lowest level, me and 75 Italian immigrants on this cruiser. We were in the lower deck, bread and water, and it was just the cheapest way you could possibly get from over there to here. We were coming, I had been in Jordan and Israel for about five months, long enough to be homesick. And coming into New York Harbor, Lady Liberty just kind of came up from the ocean, it appeared that way. The floodlights on Lady Liberty, the ivory color, it was just an indescribable, indescribable experience for me. I can imagine what the immigrants must have felt. About 25 years later, the floodlights were off, and in the light of the sun, it became obvious that the luster of Lady Liberty was being tarnished. And as they looked on the inside, she was decomposing and in danger of collapse. And that is when Lee Iacocca, past chairman of Chrysler Corporation, was called upon to organize a united effort by the people of the United States to restore Lady Liberty. <clears throat> Lady Liberty's plight is an accurate metaphor for many marriages. As with monuments, so with marriages, they tend to deteriorate over time into in arrangements unless an ongoing investment is made in that marriage. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. There is a way to keep our marriage in repair, shining, sparkling, not only under the floodlights of public display, but on the inside where nobody can see. God's instruction manual clearly describes the ingredients which result in a truly golden wedding anniversary. See if this thing's going to cooperate today. <clears throat> now, before I identify these ingredients, I want to say that this is not a formula in spite of what the sermon title says. These are ingredients that go into maintaining a healthy, wholesome, uh, fruitful marriage relationship. And I'm going to talk simply common, ordinary biblical common sense that we see revealed in Scripture, the kind of stuff that you might hear in a premarital counseling session. And it's all of these comments today, last week, and next week are based on the concept in Genesis 2.24 where it says, Therefore a man-ish, a man, male, shall leave his father and mother and be and cleave to his isha, female wife, and they shall become, in the process of becoming, a one flesh relationship. And the weaving together of a one flesh relationship is an ongoing process through all the years of marriage. Leave, cleave, and weave. This message this morning is not going to, to contain psychological theory or theological terminology but it is going to be based upon a presupposition, the biblical presupposition, that Christian marriage was designed by God to be a picture of and patterned after the relationship that Jesus Christ 
has with his church. I invite you to look in your Bible to Revelation, last book of the Bible, chapter 19. Revelation, chapter 19, where we, the body of Christ, the church, is described as being in a relationship as a wife to Jesus Christ. Verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And that be you, and that be me. That's the precedent. Here's the picture. I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Perhaps the classic text of all texts as it relates to the marriage relationship. In verse 21, it begins at the end of instructions about walking circumspectly as believers in Christ. And by the way, most of what we're going to be sharing this morning applies to all of us as individuals uh, as well as married partners. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church and the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his, of his flesh and of his bones, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife that the two may become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father in heaven, I thank you for the instructions that you have given us in your word to show us the way, the instruction manual that teaches us how to to live successfully in the marriage relationship, honorably and fruitfully. I pray, Father, today that as we look at this information that you will be our instructor, and I pray, Father, the one that pricks our heart our conscience, where it needs to be pricked. Enable us, strengthen us, Father, to to respond as you would have us respond, however that may be. We're all at different places in our life. So I pray, Father, you would be the one to instruct us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first ingredient before us is acceptance. 
Paul said in Romans, Wherefore, accept one another, just as also Christ accepted us to the glory of God. Here's the principle. Acceptance receives another based upon common goals rather than common interests or preferences. This is critical because we're told that 70% of all those who marry, marry their opposites. It really is true. You you look at your, your spouse and yourself. Opposites attract. Have you noticed that? Someone once said that when two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. You know the illustration of a knife and a fork? You can eat with one or the other, but not in polite company. When the two are put together, their effectiveness is strengthened. The, The good, the usefulness of both are increased. And in the real world of love and marriage, the very things that initially drew us to each other later became an irritation once we were living with them 24-7. For example, if you're married, it's quite likely that one of you is an early riser. You hit the floor running and whistle. Oh, isn't that awful? Some of the rest of us, it takes three cups of starter fluid to get going. Over in the other building in the kitchen there's a yellow mug that says on the side of the mug it says just bring me my coffee and a donut then slowly back away (laughs) now that that describes some of us one of you may be talkative never met a stranger the other is quiet reserved and kind of seems to be standoffish one is a great spender generous to a fault the other is a tightwad one is romantic supercharged, the other's a real dud. The one says, drop everything, and the other says, drop dead. (laughs) One of you is down to earth and practical. The other's really a space cadet. One is decisive and immediate. The other takes 45 minutes just to read a menu. You get the picture. We're all different. But differences are not right or wrong. They're just differences. And in a marriage, hear this. In a marriage, our differences that we bring with us both temper and strengthen the other. I am so thankful for my wife, and I praise God that she's not like me. She is very, very different. It's a good thing. Those differences have tempered me, and boy, did I need to be tempered. And they have strengthened me. And maybe my differences have done a little Uh, in her life as well. When we think of acceptance, God himself set the precedent. For God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The difference was unbridgeable except God in his incredible love and mercy bridged the gap in the person of Jesus who came and died that we might live. The next ingredient, attention. Over 16 times the Bible says that we are to love one another. Peter told us how. Fervently, with a pure heart. In practical terms, that means focused 
attention. Focused attention is in incredibly important in marriage and in parenting, I might add. And this thought I shared with you last week. In practical terms, uh, the principle is attention is the active expression of love, the consistent active expression of love which attaches value to the object of the attention. Attaches value, so important. When Junior says, watch me, Daddy, he is transparently exposing the need that we all have, regardless of our age, to be valued by another, especially by the one with whom we gave ourselves in covenant vow before God. Do you remember the attention that you lavished upon your mate before you were married? As you think about, about it now, it's kind of embarrassing. You go to a restaurant, you can always tell the ones that are engaged and the ones that are married. The ones that are engaged have this little table over in the corner. They're holding hands and they're just glued to each other's eyes. And it's, it's disgusting almost. You know, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> now, some of you who are millennials are going to find this very hard to believe. But when I was in my early 20s, <clears throat> we didn't have cell phones. And long-distance telephone calls were very expensive. And for three months before Sherry and I, just before we were married, she was in Ohio and I was in Washington State. <clears throat> Every three days or so, I would write her a letter. And I wrote it in cursive. <laughs> Folded it, put it in an envelope, licked the envelope, put a stamp on it. And back in those days, you had to lick the stamp too and put it in the mail. You know, it, it actually works. We had a great relationship back and forth in the mail. But here's the problem. She saved those letters. <laughs> About every five years, she drags this pile of letters out and randomly reads one. And when she gets to about the second paragraph, my face is red and I'm squirming and I ask her, please quit. I can't believe I said those things. She'd probably fall off her chair if I said those same things now. Well, that's that's a, uh, a, my bad. <clears throat> Where was I? <laughs> the precedent for value-giving attention is pictured for us by the attention that the Father has for us. Casting all your care, Peter said, upon him. Why? He cares for us. You know, in our day-to-day, -day, we sometimes don't realize just how intimately involved our Father's love and care and investment in us and attention is. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. God deeply, intimately cares and is focused upon us as his children. There's a third ingredient, <clears throat> adaptable. Ephesians 5.21 says that we are to submit to one another in the fear of God. 
This deference to one another is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The passage that follows there in Ephesians 5, following verse 21, commands husbands to love their wives and for wives to submit to their own husbands. Paul took three verses to to instruct the wives. He took nine verses to instruct the men. Why? Because for men, you pretty much got to draw a picture. It just takes them a little longer to get it. The two things that he said were love, men, you're the head of the home and, and you have responsibility for the welfare of that home and it begins with you. By loving consistently, absolutely, totally love your wife as Christ loved the church. And wives, you are to submit to the, to the husband in everything. And, and it gives this 12 verses. But at the very last verse, he summarizes what he had said in verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife. How? As himself. Pretty absolute and complete. And the wives see that you respect your husbands. Without respect from the husband or the wife, there is no foundation for a consistent, loving, fruitful marriage union. Love and respect. That is the foundation for becoming adaptable. Principle, being willing to compromise one's preferences for the mutual well-being of one another. There is always room for compromise when it comes to preferences. If we have an always-get-my-own-way mindset, you will, but you and your marriage will be the loser. Better Homes and Gardens surveyed 300,000 married couples. 300,000. And they asked this question, why do marriages fail? The number one response was immaturity. The second response was selfishness. Now we disguise those realities, immaturity and selfishness, with the word called incompatibility. No. Immaturity, selfishness, stubbornness is the reason most marriages fail. We can call it incompatibility, but it's immaturity, selfishness, and stubbornness. Truth is, the longer we live selfishly, the more set in our ways we become, and no second, third, or fourth marriage will change the immature, stubborn, selfish mindset. Love always finds a way, and the precedent is found in the Lord's relationship to us. His love found a way that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So, we all need acceptance. We all need focused attention. We all need to be adaptable, but above all else, above all else, I believe what we need in a successful marriage is amnesty. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul said, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How and why? Just as God in Christ forgave you. If we're going to succeed in marriage, there must be a spirit of forgiveness. 
There must be a spirit of forgiveness if, if, if a marriage is going to work because we're all deeply flawed and no marriage can endure without forgiveness. It's the oil, it's the lubricant of a healthy, lasting marriage. One guy famously pronounced, we have a beef stew relationship. I beef and she stews. When it comes to that, when we get to that place, we can rehearse, we can keep beefing, we can keep stewing until it becomes a monster and it begins to divide. Or we can release it, we can forgive. The principle is very simple. Being willing to release our mate from any desire to get even or make them pay. Not holding them as emotional hostages. Are you holding on to something this morning? That's bringing resentment into your marriage relationship. Resentment is like a boomerang. It always comes back, and the greatest loser is the person who's resentful. But in the process, many are hurt. Open up your marriage with a spirit of amnesty, forgiveness. It's the foundation upon which then we can open up our hearts and begin to deal with the real issues that attack or come into our marriage. So many times I find people, well, when I get the kind of uh, confession and repentance and whatnot that I deserve, then I'll forgive. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is a spirit that is willing, eager, open, and forgives even before. And with that kind of forgiveness, then re- uh, communication can be established where we can get down to the heart and the heart of issues. And never forget that the basis for forgiving is the greater forgiveness that we have received from God in Christ. We will never have to forgive like God has forgiven us. It cost his own son. The precedent, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions. East and west never converge. And God said to Jeremiah, their sins I will remember no more. Complete, absolute, unconditional, no strings. That's the kind of forgiveness that keeps marriage where it is fruitful. Now, if forgiveness is the lubrication of a marriage... I believe that appreciation is the polish. The language of appreciation is thank yous, I likes, you're really good at, you really, that really helps win. Appreciation is affirmation. And we all bloom under affirmation. I need affirmation. Yeah, I, I'll have to say this at the, at the preaching team meeting this week. Jacob said something about what I said, actually the way I said something, last week. And that just felt so good. Well, thank you, Jacob. I, you know, I rarely hear. Oh, I hear when I blow it. But, but you know, I really appreciate what, what Jacob had to say. Thank you, Jacob. The fundamental idea of the word 
appreciation is to raise in value. We talk about our houses appreciating in value or depreciating. Appreciation is affirmation, and we all shine under that. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, it says, the wife is the glory of the husband. I think the reverse is also true. And the glory here means to cause to shine. And it's a reflected appreciation. The wife is the reflected appreciation of the husband and vice versa. You know, uh, you may be uh, thinking that your wife could, um, could just be a whole lot better, you know? Well, start appreciating her more and it will be reflected in her countenance. And again, I say vice versa. Now, I, in light of this, this whole thing of appreciation, I'm going to violate a rule of homiletics that I was taught many years ago in seminary. I'm going to stand before you and read a prolonged story. But I think you will understand why when we get to the end. Hang with me. Stay tuned. When I sailed to Kinawata, an island in the Pacific, I took along a notebook. After I got back, it was filled with descriptions of flora, fauna, native customs and, cult and costumes. But the only note that still interests me is the one that says Johnny Lingo gave eight cows for Sarita's father. How many of you have heard this before? Good. Just three of you. All right. Good Lord, I said, eight cows? She must have beauty that takes your breath away. Well, she's not ugly, he conceded, and smiled a little, but the kindest could only say Sarita plain. Sam Carew, her father, was afraid she'd be left on his hands. But then he got eight cows for her. Isn't that extraordinary? Never been paid before. Yet you call Johnny's wife plain. I said it would be kindness to call her plain. She was skinny. She walked with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked. She was scared of her own shadow. Well, I said, I guess there's no accounting for love. I wanted fish. I wanted pearls. So the next afternoon, I beached my boat in Nurabandi. And I noticed as I asked directions to Johnny's house, that his name brought no sly smile to the lips of his fellow Nurabandians. And when I met the slim, serious young man, when he welcomed me with grace to his home, I was glad that from his own people he had respect, unmingled with mockery. We sat in his house and talked. Then he asked, You come here from Kinawata? Yes. They speak of me on that island? They say there's nothing I might want that you can't get for me. He smiled gently. My wife is from Kinawata. Yes, I know. They speak of her a little. What do they say? Why, just uh, the question kind of caught me off balance. They told me you were married at festival time. Nothing more? The curve of his eyebrow told me he knew there was more. Well, they also say the marriage settlement was eight cows. I paused. They wonder why. They asked that. 
His eyes lightened with pleasure. Everyone in Kinawata knows about the eight cows. I nodded. And in Nirabandi, everyone knows too. His chest expanded with satisfaction. Always and forever, when they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for Sarita. So that's the answer, I thought. Vanity. And then I saw her. I watched her enter the room to place flowers on the table. She stood still a moment to smile at the young man beside me. Then she went swiftly out again. She was the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle of her eyes all spelled a pride to which no one could deny her the right. I turned back to Johnny Lingo and found him looking at me. You admire her, he murmured. She, she's glorious, but she's not Sarita from Kinawata, I said. There's only one Sarita. Perhaps she does not look the way they say she looked in Kinawata. She doesn't. I, I, I heard she was homely. They all make fun of you because you let old Sam Carew cheat you. You think eight cows were too many? I, a smile slid over his lips. No, but how can she be so different? Do you ever think, he asked, what it must mean to a woman to know that her husband has settled on the lowest price for which she can be bought? And then later when the women talk, they boast of what their husbands paid for them. One says four cows, another maybe six. How does, how does she feel, the woman who was sold for one or two? This could not happen to my Sarita. Then you did this just to make your wife happy. Uh, I wanted Sarita to be happy. But I wanted more than that. You say she is different. This is true. Many things can change a woman. Things that happen inside and things that happen outside. But the thing that matters most is what she thinks about herself. In Kinawata, Sarita believed she was worth nothing. Now she knows she is, the, she is worth more than any other woman in the islands. I wanted to marry Sarita. I loved her and no other woman. But he finished softly. I wanted an eight-cow wife. If asked, based upon the appreciation of your husband, the affirmation. Are you an eight-cow wife? And men? An eight-cow husband? The principle, every individual is of infinite value. The cross of Jesus Christ tells us that. And how he treats us, how he affirms us, having blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Christ, where we are seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ, joint heirs with Christ, adopted as sons, not servants, forever and ever joint heirs with Christ. One last ingredient, affection. In Romans 16, 16, Paul said, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, among us, middle school boys when I was that age, this was our favorite verse. Because we all had visions of that kiss with that special girl. 
it wasn't a holy kiss. It was a kiss of another variety. But here, the common greeting in, in Paul's day, greeting one another with a holy kiss. This is a part of marriage that gives it fragrance, where there's affirmation, physical appreciation and affection. As food is to physical health, so human warmth and tenderness is to emotional health. Now, listen to me carefully here. Just as sex is viewed as love in and of itself, so touch without prior emotional bonding will alienate. Sex as the response to covenant commitment builds and bonds. So human touch as the overflow of all of this that we've talked about builds and bonds. It's a very positive thing. The poignant precedent is seen in the life of Jesus just hours before he went to cross when he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Physical affirmation as well as verbal is so critical in the ongoing maintenance of a marriage. Lots of these are just little things. Acceptance, attention, being adaptable, amnesty, appreciation, affection. But they are the stuff of which a solid marriage lasts. How about your acceptance? Have you invited by your actions your mate, your spouse, into your inner self? How about attention? Is he or she top priority, marching at the head of your parade? And I say this sincerely. Your wife, your husband, must be a precedent greater than your children. Your children come to go. Your mate is till death do you part. How about adaptability? Have you chosen to be adaptable? Will you compromise your preferences? Or do you have I must, an attitude of I must have my, way, my own way? Regardless, nothing will destroy a, a marriage quicker. How about amnesty? Do you freely pardon or do you place your mate on probation? How about appreciation? Are you nagging or bragging? Do you have a, an eight-cow wife or husband who reflects appreciation of your mate? And how about affection? Are you consciously cultivating your relationship or has the grass grown brown for lack of water? You can have a truly golden wedding anniversary. And I'm going to keep doing these kinds of things for my wife 
for two more years, and then it'll be our 50th. Then I'm going to treat her really bad. No, no, uh-uh. You can truly have a golden wedding anniversary, and it's not a formula. It's honestly being obedient to the Lord. And then to your sister in Christ to whom you have committed yourself. It comes down to a choice, a continuing to choose to love your mate, even as Christ loves us. It's not necessarily easy, but then I guess none of us are really that easy to love. But God did, and by his grace, so can we. And I just want to leave you with this. Love and all that we have spoken about this morning is a choice, not a feeling. Sometimes we feel to love. Many times we don't. That's just reality. But true love is a choice, especially when we don't feel like it. Love is an action that always seeks the welfare of the object of the love. Father, I thank you that it certainly wasn't because of warm, fuzzy feelings that Jesus died on that cross. It was a love far, far, far deeper than that. Father, grant that we would have the courage to love our mate even when they're undeserving, and even when we certainly don't feel like it. Father, that we might be obedient to you in all things and choose to love and to obey you, recognizing that we all received a far greater forgiveness from you than we will ever have to extend to our mate. I pray, Father, that our marriages would truly be reflections of the relationship that you have with your bride, the church. And I pray, Father, that there would be a sobering effect with the realization that our marriages and our families before a watching world are meant to be a reflection of the relationship Jesus Christ has with us individually and corporately. These things I pray in Jesus' name, amen.